So what, what I always like to say as a rule of thumb, make the model as simple as you can. Start with just the basic assumptions that really drive the business. Try as the modeler not to add any complexity. Welcome to Boosting Your Financial IQ, where we talk about business finance and how to increase your confidence as you speak the language of money and apply these principles to drive greater financial value in your company. Please share and enjoy. So let's start with what is FP&A? What does that actually stand for? Yeah, so the actual acronym stands for Financial Planning and Analysis. Okay. At a simple level, the way to think of that is, right, every company needs someone to help guide that budgeting process. We should be doing it in our personal lives and similar for companies. We're doing that that planning at you know, for a whole company, figuring out, okay, what revenue should we bring in? What expenses should we have? And what does that mean for us long-term? Now, for companies that, that let's just say they're, they're starting up or they're starting to ramp up, maybe they have like a bookkeeper, an accountant type role, and then maybe they have a controller uh, or maybe they even have a CFO. At what point does a company hire a, a dedicated FP&A person or like designate somebody to be the FP&A person? versus just having like the controller engage in these FP&A type activities? Yeah, it's a great question. And it it does vary by company. You know, a lot of it, if you have a great controller, a lot of times they can do that. Sometimes a CFO may do it. A number of companies will even have somebody fractionally do it. A lot of times a fractional CFO will do that budgeting and forecasting. Typically, I would say full-time, if we're talking like VC-backed, uh, you know, end of series B, series C, somewhere in there, you usually see them bring in someone full-time. You know, I'd say, again, depends on the complexity of the company, but often, you know, 15, 20 million. So some companies, if they're small enough and they're not, you know, fast moving a lot of pieces, some companies will just keep it with the controller and the internal team. Others may hire really early, but I'd say the one thing we find is Companies that do it earlier, you really find very few that regret it. The yeah. earlier you can afford to do it, it's reasonably practical, the more it makes sense because FP&A really does more than just that planning. They're really helping you maximize how you're spending your money, which often owners don't have that literacy around right. finance to ensure they're making the best decisions with their money. No, absolutely. I mean, when I was a CFO of a fintech, you know, we were raising a bunch of capital. We were growing quickly. We were doing acquisitions. And I had a, uh, my right-hand person, her name was Caitlin. She did an amazing job. She was my FP&A director. And, you know, I relied heavily on her, her uh, role because, you know, whether we were modeling out an acquisition, whether we were looking at cost controls, whether we're trying to evaluate our cash flow or return on investments, you know, that's such a critical role. And it, mm -hmm. it extends far beyond like you're saying, just the controller role where you're doing compliance, transactional stuff, you're preparing financial statements. It's like, okay, well, what are you doing with that information? What are you doing with the, the financial reports that you're producing? And that's where the FP&A function comes in to analyze it, to forecast numbers, to build out these models and so on and so forth. Exactly. And I really like something you said there. You said you're kind of as a right-hand person, someone you relied on in decision-making. And that's what the best FP&A is. I, you know, I've been in roles where I've been really valued and others not as much, but you know, I always love when I'm in that role where the general manager, whoever the leader is, they don't want to make a decision 
without FP&A in the room or without talking to us, at least, you know, a material decision around the business. And that's when you know you have good FP&A and you have a good relationship there. It's working the way it should. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, what's interesting is like, when I look back on my whole college experience, I did my undergraduate in accounting and finance. In my undergraduate degree, we did a little bit of Excel. Like we didn't do a whole lot. A lot of it was just textbook textbook exercises, filling out like, you know, the T charts on a piece of paper and turning it into your teacher. And it's not like I'm that old. So it's not like computers weren't around. It's just the program wasn't heavily tech related. And then my master's of accountancy program, they integrated tech a lot more. And I could tell you that one of the most valuable courses that I took out of my whole accounting finance studies was financial modeling. And so maybe you can explain, Paul, what exactly is financial modeling and why is it so important, not just for uh, business owners and business leaders and entrepreneurs to be aware of, but also students who may be coming up through the ranks and they they want to get a job in finance. Or yeah. I mean, right. Numbers are the language of finance. And the number one thing we use to make decisions in finance and in many companies is that financial model. At the end of the day, all a model is, is trying to project some kind of real world situation. Mm-hmm. You're taking some assumptions saying, hey, I think I can make this much revenue, inflation will this, here's my expenses. And you're calculating what that will look like over some time period to determine, hey, does this investment make sense? If I put $100,000 into this, am I going to get an appropriate return for that money? Really, sure. that's what you're trying to decide in one way or another. Lots of different models. That could be buying a company, it could be investing in capital, it could just be planning year to year. And so, yeah, that's the first thing. The second part, I think, of what you mentioned is really important, you know, the financial modeling side and why people need to understand it. You know, I think it's so important to understand because the reality is one, you're going to use it regularly to make decisions. And two, historically, most people have built poor models. I've Mm -hmm. built plenty. Most models aren't well designed. You know, people don't get that experience, the class like you mentioned, to really learn how to build a model because there's some basic design principles and things that can be done that can make models a lot more valuable than many are. As you know, as I like to say, you know, what's a, what's a broken model? The new guy's problem, mm-hmm. right? And unfortunately, that's all too often. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, let me let me bring up this because I'm sure you have a ton of experience with this. I've seen some disgusting models and I'm kind of a snob with models. You know, I have my formatting down. It's like, okay, blue cells are input cells, black cells are formula cells, green ties to another sheet, red's like Mm -hmm. a cell where it's like, yep, pause, take extra caution, whatever your formatting forte is. But what I've seen is the balance between spreadsheets that just have worksheet after worksheet after worksheet, and they're all interrelated. And it's just like so much. And sure, it's like, yeah, there may be precision in there, but also when you consider like the materiality of some of these models, it's like, okay, do you really need to get into that much detail? I share that because I was working with somebody in the past and she would build out these like super elaborate models. And I was like, I can't follow you. I'm like, okay, I got this board meeting. I need to understand like that this one line item, right? Line 36 where my free cash flow is built out, I need to trust 
that that number is correct. And it's like, well, I got a working capital schedule. I have a revenue buildup schedule. I have, you know, the, the OPEX schedule, the depreciation schedule, all these schedules, all these sheets, all this complication. And I'm like, how can I feel confident going in there knowing that you didn't fat finger something on the working capital schedule and it, you know, our, our cash flow is completely off. So what's the balance here, Paul, with super complex financial models and just having like a really simple model where it's like cash flow? Yeah. So what what I always like to say as a rule of thumb, make the model as simple as you can. Start with just the basic assumptions that really drive the business. Try as the modeler not to add any complexity because the reality is the business will add complexity. You don't need to add more. They'll come back and say, I want this or I want that, right? You need a minimum level. I had a guy on a podcast, his name's Brian uh, Eager, and he's the head of uh, modeling at Bloomberg. And, you know, in his case, you know, he's doing a lot of modeling for equities for public markets. And he says, I start with saying the minimum I need is the amount of information you can get out of a disclosure Mm -hmm. so that they can feel comfortable going forward. And then beyond that, I have to ask myself with each thing, does it materially matter? And I think that's one of the most important questions you you can ask yourself because often you put in assumptions and they make virtually no difference to the model. Because at the end of the day, as uh, one of my favorite people said, a guy by the name of George Box, he said, all models are wrong, some are useful. Mm -hmm. So adding more complexity isn't going to make you right. You're going to be wrong regardless. So keep it simple is the biggest advice I can offer focus on those key drivers. And often that's three or five things. Rarely is that 50 or 60. There may be times due to the complexity, it could be that, but usually it's not. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely agree. So I was talking to one of my clients yesterday and he was having me look at this real estate model. So he's looking at acquiring this property and is, and is pretty complex, you know, which it needed sure. to be because that like rents and depreciation, mm-hmm. all this stuff. Right. But, you know, he said to me, he's like, Steve, you know, sometimes this stuff is just, you know, it's just so over the top. But at the end of the day, when I'm deciding a go, no-go decision on a deal, it's really, I'm just looking at this one box. And so he he's kind of like poo-pooing the idea of financial modeling, which, you know, I understand what he's saying. And like you said, it's like, you know, financial models are wrong, but some of them are useful. So I, I think that's really important to understand. There is still value in modeling because the alternative is, you're just like seriously guessing. I mean, you're literally like, should we go or okay? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. I, I just have this hunch. Without building it out, you, you're not going to really understand. Okay, where are the assumptions? Where are the risk points in the whole project? And you know, and so on and so forth. What are your thoughts on that? I agree. I think often. So I interviewed a guy, Sam Severian. I haven't released the episode yet, and you know, he has a PhD in behavioral finance, a law degree, and he started his career doing M&A and telecom. And I love something he said. We spent quite a bit talking about the idea that the reality is more important than the model is actually the planning process. It goes, Mm -hmm. rarely is the end model the most important thing, whatever number it spits out. If you've done a good job, you've thought of the different contingencies and the risks, and you've done some scenario planning of that, because rarely is there one right number. In fact, there almost never is. And so I think, you know, my counter to that would be, it's really about the process and getting comfortable in what you're doing. You know, if you've done hundreds of deals and it's very similar, you may feel comfortable without a big detailed model. Probably still good to do to see what that number is going to look like, but you may have a really good idea just intuitively to a certain extent. Yep. 
No, I agree. I mean, cause that's me. Like when I'm building out a valuation model or like um, I'm building out like a capital budgeting model, whatever it may be to decide, okay, do we want to expand here? Do we want to acquire this company? Whatever it may be. You know, there are certain line items that are super sensitive and you know this, I mean, you build out models all the time. So I'm, I, you know, I'll look at maybe like the labor costs as a percentage of revenue. And it's like, wow, that's like super sensitive on the model. Like the, the final <laughs> value of cash flow or intrinsic value, whatever it may be, is really sensitive to my labor. So I don't have a lot of historical data because maybe it's a startup. So I'm kind of guessing on my labor projections, but I know like, dang, that's super sensitive. So then it helps me when I'm making a decision and I say, okay, I'm like 60, 70% confident that this is a good deal because my labor input is so sensitive that helps. But then also post deal, let's say the deal does go through, you can almost go back to your model and say, Hey, these two, three factors make or break the entire economics of the project. Let's focus on these. Let's create strategic initiatives to make sure that we're pouring in the right resources and the right amount of focus here to make this project viable. And, and that's how I use models. And I, I think that's uh, really helpful for me and for my clients. What are your thoughts on that? I agree. I mean, I think it's really, you hit on a really important part, right? There's usually one or two things that are huge to the model that it's very sensitive to, right? If you have a, like a SaaS model that you're building, it's going to be super sensitive to the quota assumption you make or the churn yep. assumptions you make, right? There's just a couple assumptions there that are going to drive all your revenue. And you really want to get comfortable around those. Are you being realistic? Because, you know, one of those things you see, especially early on, is this idea of, well, if I just add field sales, I can take the quota up and there'll be room to sell it. Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe not. Have you really thought about that? Or is it just because that number makes it look really pretty, right? It makes yeah. the investor happy because, ooh, I'm growing 400% this year, but reality might be 150. So I think as best you can, it's really trying to validate those assumptions. And in some case, they're really, it's new. There isn't a true validation. You can't say, yes, I'm sure. But yeah. you can look at benchmarks and there's a lot of things you can do to get comfortable with that number and the sensitivity around it. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't know how you learned your modeling skills for me. Like I said, I, I took courses in school, but I, it's also like I coupled that knowledge of all my accounting and finance classes with the modeling course. I also did some stuff with like training the street out of New York. They're, they're a good company that teach mm -hmm. financial modeling and other things. And then I spent thousands and thousands of hours literally in Excel. I mean, I like lived mm -hmm. in Excel, especially in public accounting and consulting. Um, but for somebody who's listening, he's like, yeah, that's great. But like, where do I get started? Do you have a, a different path for people who are listening who want to build financial modeling skills? Maybe there's a new way or a better way to fast track their way to building great models. What are your thoughts on that? Point? Yeah, I'll definitely offer a couple. And for me, it was a lot of trial and error. I didn't get the courses early on. It wasn't until later in my career. I'd say the you know, first few years of modeling, I did terrible models. Nobody told me color coding. It yeah. wasn't common in corporate finance. So, but I think there's a couple things you can really do. If you're earlier in your career, I think one way to really distinguish yourself and stand out is to look at something like the Financial Modeling Institute. They're mm -hmm. the only experiential accredited finance uh, certification you can earn globally. So what happens is they have some study material and you prepare yourself and you go take a test that shows you can build a three-statement integrated model in four hours. So it says, yes, I'm a qualified modeler. 
And then they have a level two, which is much more complex. That's one great way to be able to show an employer and to get a certain level of validation. And they have some study with that and people offer study for that course. Some other things people can do, and this, some people kind of laugh at this when I say it, but I've talked to enough people now. So last weekend I was in Las Vegas mm -hmm. for the Financial Modeling World Cup Championship. They held it in a HyperX sports arena. Paul, you and are a nerd. I love it. I'm a total nerd. I freely admit it. <laughs> but doing those type of events, whether it's the Excel esports or the financial modeling one where you're doing cases, you get a lot better in Excel. Like the guy who they, they, they jokingly refer to him as the LeBron James of modeling. You know, he's won the world championship a couple of times, come in second. Mm -hmm. And I interviewed him and he made the comment. I asked him how, you know, earning a world championship has helped him. And he goes, much more than the recognition, it's helped me be better at my job. Hmm. So, you know, not the recognition I've got from other people mowing me and meeting all these people globally has helped me, but the learning and being better has helped me more than anything. So if someone's looking a way to prepare themselves. I've had multiple people who've taken those tests say, a great way to do that is to do those cases because they force you to learn Excel well, to think fast, to yeah. get, you know, practice in a, a safe environment where if you screw up, you might look embarrassed. Anyone can go watch my first attempt. They decided to put my first attempt on YouTube, streamed it live with three other contestants. And let's just say my score was at the bottom for 29 of the 30 minutes. Okay. <laughs> and it was the last 29, not the, <laughs> so. Well, that, that's interesting. Okay. What about um, other tools, hacks for like artificial intelligence where is artificial intelligence with financial modeling? You know, are we at the point just like with GPT chat where you could type something in? I mean, can you pull up an Excel model and say, build me a model, grow revenue from 500 grand, you know, 5% every year for the next five years. Here's my cost. Bam, hit submit and it builds you out a model. Are we there yet? Are there other tools? What are your thoughts on yeah, all that with AI? We, we can. It's. I don't think it's easy. I don't think the prompts are clear, but if you really know what you're doing, you could have it build 90% of that model today. There's definitely areas, especially the more complex the model, the harder it's going to be. But a very simple model, it could be done today. And I think we'll continue to see it. But the more important thing than how much you know AI builds it is, still, can we make sure the human element is covered? The judgment, mm -hmm. right? The modeler still going to need that. AI mm -hmm. is not who I want to trust for those very sensitive decisions that we need to make on drivers, like, you know, where headcount should be. Can it give us yeah. some ideas? So we're, we're already seeing it to a certain extent, start building the model. And I think it will get better at that. It will get mm -hmm. more complex and make it easier for us for sure. So is it like a plugin, like an AI plugin to Excel? Is it built into Excel? Is it in Google Sheets? Like what are your- what I are haven't necessarily about? seen them built in. So I saw one, this was even a couple of years ago where there was one that a lot of investment banks start learning where you could load any of 500 public companies and it would build you the entire frame of the model. And then you start working using best practice, using color coding, outputting all the formulas, using Python. I think what we're seeing now with most AI, there's some starting to build it. I've seen some of the tools trying to build some things, but most of what we're seeing right now, you'd really have to prompt it yourself. So, right, I could open up ChatGPT with Code Interpreter and I could say, hey, I want you to create a model. I, and I've done this. I want you to create a, you know, a sample P&L. I haven't gone through three statements, but a sample P&L. I want revenue to grow by X. I want it to be 12 months. I want it to be across you know, columns, yeah. this, that. I want your general account lines and it will start building that out for you. Okay.
Yeah, that, that's good to know. And, and yeah, it's just going to become more pervasive. I think the key is, and you touched on it, is it doesn't matter where AI goes. I think AI is going to you know complement modeler skills, but really the skill set I think is in two areas. Number one, interpretation, as you mentioned. Yep. Because if you don't look at the model, right, and you don't understand the story behind the numbers, like you're just you know reading off what it says on the page, you can make major major decisions that are flawed. But number two, I think a, a huge skill is communication. Be able to take that model, take that, you know, that chart, whatever it may be, and stand up in front of the board or investors or customers and say, look, you know, here's the story that I want to present. And how do you be persuasive? And how do you be like empathetic? And how do you like tell the story to to motivate action? I think that's that's really the skill set that is missing and that could be built upon in addition to financial modeling. Totally agree. That that human element, that empathy, that presentation, the telling the story, those are things that I don't see AI doing anytime soon. Right. Who knows what the future has? I'll never say no, but I don't see it at this point. Yeah, I agree. Paul, this has been great. Thank you so much for being on the show. Um, I really appreciate your insights in into the FP&A world and especially as it pertains to financial modeling. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you having me on the show, Steve. Enjoyed chatting with you for a few minutes today. Yep. And for everybody who's listening, if you want to learn more about Paul Barnhurst, you could go to byfiq.com, which stands for Boosting Your Financial IQ. Go there. I'll have a guest page for him with his bio, with links, so you can connect with him and see what he's up to. So I highly recommend that. And in the meantime, I hope you have a fantastic week. And until next episode, take care of yourself. Cheers. Hey, real quick. If you get value out of this podcast, it would mean the world to me if you would leave us a review. Also, if you want to be featured on the show, send me a recording with your name, your age, where you're from, and your question through a voice note or a video using your smartphone. Then email me the file at hello at byfiq.com. BYFIQ stands for boosting your financial IQ. So once again, it's hello at BYFIQ.com. If selected, I'll give you a shout out and answer your question for you and the entire community. One last thing, if you want access to additional resources that will help you fast track your path to financial freedom, visit BYFIQ.com or download our free app in the Apple or Google Play app store today. Thanks again.